Okay, well, let's go ahead and I'll read the four, first portion of Daniel chapter 6. It pleased King Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps stationed throughout the whole kingdom and over them three presidents, including Daniel. So these the satraps gave account so that the king might suffer no loss. Soon Daniel distinguished himself above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to appoint him over the whole kingdom. So the presidents and the satraps tried to find grounds for complaint against Daniel in connection with the kingdom, but they could find no grounds for complaint of any corruption because he was faithful and no negligence or corruption could be found in Daniel. The men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So the presidents and satraps conspired and came to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors, the governors were all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an interdict that whoever prays to anyone, divine or human, for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into a den of lions. Now, O king, establish the interdict and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the interdict. Although Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he continued to go to his house, which had windows in its upper room open towards Jerusalem, and to get down on his knees three times a day to pray to his God and praise him, just as he had done previously. The conspirators came and found Daniel praying and seeking mercy before his God. Then they approached the king and said concerning the interdict, O king, did you not sign an interdict that anyone who prays to anyone divine or human within 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into a den of lions? The king answered, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they responded to the king, Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the interdict you have signed, but he is saying his prayers three times a day. Okay, so if we recall from chapter five, Darius is now the Persian ruler and Belshazzar last week was taken over. The writing was on the wall and that very night Darius came in and the Persians are now in charge. And we recall from last week that true to his word, Belshazzar did give Daniel a high ranking position after he had interpreted the writing on the wall. And it seems that Darius has kept him in that position. And so Daniel is really high up. He is one of three presidents. That's a big deal. And um, Daniel is once again, a distinguished person in this kingdom. And we're told that even though he has rank, he distinguished himself even further above all the other presidents of the satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. This should not be a surprise for those of us who have been reading this chapter, and it continues to echo the Joseph story in Genesis where someone finds favor in a foreign kingdom and the king relies on God's established minister to, to do God's work. And so Daniel is appointed over the kingdom, but the other people are jealous. Again, this is not a new theme and they are looking for grounds to do Daniel in. And because Daniel is above reproach, they decide that they have to 
find it in terms of Daniel's worship of the God of Israel. And so they all conspire. That word is used in verse six. It is a conspiracy. And one of the things that we're going to be paying attention to in this chapter are the parallels between the, the Daniel story here and the story of Jesus's death and resurrection. So when we hear this conspiracy, I want your ears to be awakened to start looking for these parallels. And so they come to the king, they butter him up. They say, O king, live forever. And in verse seven, they say, all the presidents of the kingdom have agreed that you need to enforce this interdict. Now, that's not exactly true, right? Because Daniel is one of the presidents and he certainly has not agreed to this, but nonetheless, it's a little white lie. And what they essentially say is that, you know, you're a new king, Darius, but kind of the way it works is that everyone needs to worship you. And if they don't worship you, there needs to be a pretty stiff penalty. And as we read more, we'll see that Darius is portrayed a little bit different than Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. You know, Darius is a very likable guy. We're going to see that in this chapter. And his main sin really seems to be that he is very susceptible to influence. And so uh, throughout this chapter, he will just kind of go along with the flow and he is very easily swayed. But of course, this is also realistic. This is how governments work, right? That presidents have advisors and cabinets and military advisors. And if they all come to the president and say, this is what we're doing, it takes a pretty tough person and a very strong will to go against all that counsel, especially when you are new to the job. And Darius is new to the job. And these people are saying, this is how it works. And of course, it really was normal imperial policy in the ancient Near East to divinize the emperors, because if the emperor is God, well, that makes it really easy to enforce the laws and collect the taxes. Um, the Roman emperors, by the way, I don't think they took it quite this far because there was the pantheon of Roman and Greek gods, but they were certainly moving in that direction. And some of the first Christians were martyred for their refusal to burn incense to Caesar. Um, and so in verse 10, Daniel finds out about this document, but notice he doesn't panic. He doesn't freak out. This is not his first rodeo. He has lived through a fiery furnace. And so what does he do? He goes to an upper room towards Jerusalem and prays. Again, I want you to pay attention to these parallels. Daniel is in an upper room and this is facing towards Jerusalem. One note about that. There are some echoes here of King Solomon's prayer whenever he dedicates the temple. And, and part of that prayer, one of the things that becomes clear is that Jerusalem is where God has put his name. It was really the place of memory. And after the temple was destroyed, which by now it has been destroyed, the Babylonians destroyed that temple. For Jews, it became the place of memory. The temple is where God hears. And even today, if you go to Jerusalem, you'll find faithful Jews praying at the Western Wall in Jerusalem. One little side note, in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus says something greater than the temple is here, it's important to note that for Christians, this temple language wasn't abolished, but reinterpreted around Jesus. Jesus is now that new temple through whom prayers are offered to the Father in and through the Holy Spirit. But that's a little bit of a tangent in Christian theology. So nonetheless, Daniel is praying 
and the plan is working. Everyone goes to the king and says, uh, King, uh, we're pretty sure you just signed an interdict. Are we getting that right? He said, yeah, you're getting it right. And he says, well, you know, funny thing, one of your own presidents is uh, worshiping the God of Israel and not paying attention to you. He's saying his prayer three times a day. And of course, that's where we're going to stop for our opening discussion. But it's this setup, right, where Daniel uh, is just being faithful to God and there's a big conspiracy against him and Darius seems to be caught in the middle. So I'm going to go ahead and pause there and just see what comments or questions there are before we get to the real meat of this chapter. I was impressed. Daniel is too wonderful for words, but he could very easily have started praying to his God in private and avoided the whole issue, but he continued to pray out the windows where everybody could see him. Evie, that is a very astute reading of scripture. He is praying with the door open towards Jerusalem, right? He, you're right. He could pray a prayer in his heart and say, I will be faithful to you, O oh God, but I'm in a bit of a jam here. And so let's let this pass. And I'm sure God would be gracious and understand, but that's not what he does. He continues to observe the three times a day of prayer, which would have been the custom at that time. And he prays toward Jerusalem. He does not alter his practice in any way. And thus he is presented as a man who is 100% faithful to God, who is not intimidated in the least uh, by this new king, and who will continue to be faithful to God even when the circumstances are not very favorable. Well put. Okay, so now we're going to pick up with verse 14. When the king heard the charge, he was very much distressed. He was determined to save Daniel, and until the sun went down, he made every effort to rescue him. Then the conspirators came to the king and said, No, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no interdict or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king gave the command, and Daniel was brought and thrown into the den of lions. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you faithfully serve, deliver you. A stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his Lord, so that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No food was brought to him and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king got up and hurried to the den of lions when he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out anxiously to Daniel, O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you faithfully serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel then said to the king, O oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they would not hurt me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O oh, king, I have done no wrong. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. The king gave a command and those who had accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the den of lions, they, their children and their wives. Before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all peoples and nations of every language throughout the whole world, may you have abundant prosperity. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people should tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion has no end. 
He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, for he has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. All right, so verse 14, King Darius finds out that Daniel has been tricked. He hears the charge and we are told he is distressed and even that he is determined to save Daniel. Now, you might ask, well, why on earth doesn't he just say, okay, wait a second, this has gone too far. This is one of my presidents. I like this guy. People clearly are trying to do him in. And as we find out in verse 15, the conspirators basically say, King, this is a law of the Medes and Persians, and it cannot be changed. And the truth is, in the ancient Near East, this is how imperial rule actually worked. Kings did not take back their word. It made them look weak. It was a shame and honor culture, and it was a shameful thing once you had sealed the law to revoke it um, on a whim. And this would have made the king look weak. It would have embarrassed him. And so he really can't take it back. And he knows it. Uh, But he is determined to save Daniel. Um, Darius is portrayed as someone who does not want this to happen, a little bit like Pontius Pilate and Luke, who wanted to release Jesus, but found that he was in a bind and that the fate of Jesus slash Daniel was sealed. And so verse 16, the king gives the command and Daniel is going down to a den of lions. And the king says, may your God, whom you faithfully serve, deliver you. And so here, King Darius gives a nod to the possibility that Daniel's God can deliver him. Then verse 17, a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den again Ask yourself who also was sealed inside a stone cave thought to be dead. And uh, as we look for those parallels between the Daniel story and the Jesus story. And then we're told in verse 18 that the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting and that sleep fled from him. Either he couldn't sleep or he was staying awake in a vigil praying for Daniel. And thus, Darius is going well beyond Pontius Pilate, who probably slept fine that night and had a glass of wine and, you know, rich food. But King Darius is praying for Daniel. He does not like what has happened, and he is portrayed as a man who has a heart in the right place. And this is not like Nebuchadnezzar, who needed to be humble time and time again. Darius actually wants to do the right thing. That's how he's portrayed. And so, verse 19, at the break of day, Again, this echoes the first Easter morning while it was still dark, the sun coming up, and the king, like the women that first Easter morn, runs to the stone tomb to see if someone is to be found there. And whenever he comes, he cries out, Daniel, servant of the living God, have you been delivered? And Daniel answers, O God, king, for live forever my God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths because I was found blameless before him and I have also done no wrong to you, O king. And so the king in verse 23 was exceedingly glad. He is glad that Daniel is alive. Daniel is taken up out of the den. And then the king gives a command and those who had accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the den of lions with their children and wives, which might need some special attention in our conversation. But 
nonetheless, this time the lions are hungry and um, these end up not surviving. And notice, whenever the king gave the first command, he was strong-armed into giving it by his advisors. But this time, verse 24, King Darius gives the command himself. And so it is an authoritative command that comes from him. One thing I do want to note is that we have no evidence in the biblical record that God is telling the king to execute these people in the same way that God did not tell Moses to kill the Egyptian and bury him in the sand. Sometimes people who serve God do things that does not displease God. And this might be one of those moments where the king just chooses to execute um, in order to punish. But that's how things would have worked in the ancient Near East. And this is kind of par for the course. And then verse 25, King Darius issues a decree that people should tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. This is much stronger than what Nebuchadnezzar did. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar said in his interdict that no one's going to blaspheme the God of Daniel. Basically, don't speak ill of Daniel's God, but basically what Darius says is you will tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. And this, of course, gives a preview of the Gentiles coming to worship the God of Israel, this theme that is so prominent and finds its fulfillment in the New Testament, where the outsiders come to acknowledge the one living God. And then Darius praises God. I mean, this could be a canticle, right, that we sing in morning prayer. He is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. I mean, notice the contrast between Darius and Nebuchadnezzar. Here, Darius, the king, says God's kingdom will never be destroyed. This is the lesson that God was trying to teach Nebuchadnezzar, who was obsessed with his own kingdom. But here Darius gets it right. And part of what Darius is doing here is basically saying, this is the God who does stuff. You know, this God may send his people into exile, but at least this God is alive. And at least this God is working out a larger plan of salvation. And so to the people who read this book in the second century BCE, or the first century CE, people who experience themselves under the oppressive rule of either Syria in the second century BC or Rome in the first century, this would have pointed God's people to a reminder that the God they worship is alive and that his kingdom is the one that will last. And so God is praised through the mouth, not of Daniel, but Darius at the end of this chapter. And then we're told in a nice summary statement in verse 28 that Daniel continued to prosper during the reign of Darius and even into the reign of Cyrus the Persian, who would come next. Now, before we have a little conversation, I want to point out some of these parallels. Daniel was charged with blasphemy with not worshiping the right God, not bowing down to the king. Jesus also was charged with blasphemy. Now, it was different, but the charges were blasphemy. Um, Darius wanted to release Daniel. Pilate wanted to release Jesus. Daniel is in a den of lions with the stone closed over the tomb, and Jesus also was sealed in a tomb. That question the first Easter morning was, who will roll away the stone? Darius runs to the den early in the morning, just like the women ran to the tomb that first Easter morning. And then finally, Daniel is found to be alive and prospers 
And Jesus, of course, is raised from the dead, ascending to the right hand of God. Now, I share that just because the Daniel story, the book of Daniel, I keep saying the Daniel story, I just mean the book of Daniel. It was such an important book, not just to second century BC Jews, but to Christians in the first, second, third century. And this is true for many, many reasons. But one of the reasons is because of the clear parallels between the vindicated servant of God, Daniel, and the vindicated servant of God, Jesus. And so I just kind of want to make those parallels for us in the case that you want that to inform our conversation. So I'll go ahead and stop there and see what you're thinking of as you read this chapter. Talk a little bit about um, why Daniel, I mean, it's God's plan, but you know, why Daniel was saved and Jesus wasn't. And I mean, I know ultimately he was saved, but I can really understand the people that are, you know, the people who were at the crucifixion, you know, yelling up to him. It's like, you know, your God is one who saves, you know, you know, why isn't he saving you now? You know, come down from that cross and nothing happens. Right. So Barbara, that's a really good question. And I would be doing us all a disservice if I answered that big question too quickly, because it's, okay. it's a really big question. Okay. And just to kind of almost elevate it a little bit, um, you know, people in the book of Daniel continually get saved and delivered, but there's also this tension in which the people reading this text know that it often doesn't work that way, that sometimes or always, usually, not always, but most of the times the lions actually eat you. I mean, this was real. First century Christians, what was one of the way they were martyred? It wasn't a den of lions. It was the Colosseum, right, where lions would come and devour you, and they were well aware that those lions were usually hungry. And so we go back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were thrown into the furnace. And what did they say? They basically said, um, we will pray for our God to deliver us, but if not, we will not worship you, right? And there's that whole, if not. And the earliest readers of this book were well aware of the, if not. But Barbara Stone had a big question. You know, in this book, it's always a happy ending. You know, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they're always delivered. But that's not our real experience. And so what do you all think about that? And how do you think the first people of this book would have read it? Isn't yes, it, Evie? Um, isn't it? I thought it was that we that the early Christians discovered quickly that it was part of God's plan that Jesus had to suffer. He was the suffering servant from Isaiah, that it was his mission to die. That was God's plan. It was God's plan that Daniel triumph and survive um, the lion's den so that his name could be glorified at that point among the Medes and the Persians. But Jesus had an entirely different role in the whole salvation drama. So, Evie, yes, uh, you are right about that, that looking into Isaiah 53, which is the prophecy, if you read Isaiah 53, it is all about the suffering servant and vindication. Um, the other thing, you know, Barbara, one of the reasons we're also not going to answer this question too directly too soon 
is because the final passage we're going to read in this Bible study today from Matthew 26 is going to speak to this question. But, but Evie, you're right that the suffering of Jesus was very significant to uh, the early Christians, so much so that there's a phrase in the Gospel of Luke that keeps getting repeated. And that phrase is, was it not necessary? That word necessary keeps being used in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus says it. You know, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer? Now, I'm not going to unpack why that was necessary because I'd be committing theological fraud pretending to know that answer. But the early Christians said this was necessary. And so you're right, E.B., about that. So um, as we kind of think about all of this, one of the things that I would ask you to read, kind of do a little homework towards this question, is the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. And in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, it is talking about faith and what faith has accomplished. And if you read the beginning of Hebrews, it just talks about these people who did amazing things through faith, who shut the mouths of lions, who triumphed over their enemies. And it kind of, as you kind of read that chapter, it talks about people who conquered kingdoms and obtained promises and quenched raging fire and escaped the sword and put, you know, armies to flight. It says women received their dead by resurrection. But then there's this pivot and it's so subtle. In verse 35, there's a word, I don't know what it is in Greek, but it's translated into English, others. And then it talks about the others. And the others were sawn in two. They were tortured. They were refused to, you know, uh, acquiesce to the king. And then it says, because they were hoping for a better resurrection. But my point is that if you read Hebrews 11, Barbara, one of the things it speaks to mm -hmm. is how all the people of God who live this life of faith, it lists all these people who basically saw God in this life vindicate them, and they were a symbol of God's victory here and now, but then there's this pivot halfway through the chapter, and it all pivots on a single word, and that word is others, and these others had a faith that looked a little bit more like Jesus, but if you read this chapter in the context of the whole book of Hebrews, it holds them both up as this wonderful manifestation of faith and folds them both into this plan that God is working um, that culminates in what Hebrews would call uh, a better country or uh, a different resurrection. And so it kind of points to a hope beyond this world. But I think what you're asking about, Barbara, is, well, what about the others? And uh, Hebrews knows about the others, the Bible knows about the others, and the book of Daniel knows about the others, even though it doesn't focus on them. So it's a really legitimate question. Thank you. Well, my, remark, I, my remarks I make with some hesitation. This is really a very difficult passage for me. But where I cut into it is the fact that Daniel represents Israel being ruled over by a foreign power and therefore a foreign culture. Yeah. And so any test that is given to him is, involves that cultural difference. 
and so the, the amazing part is, is that the ruler of this foreign culture can be depicted as a pretty good guy who has a sense of justice of what is right. Um, the, the other voice, however, is the deep voice of this alien culture that's committed, A, they don't like this foreigner getting ahead but B, they are committed to a different set of gods, really, and therefore a very different culture. And at this point, they intervene because they perceive Daniel to be a threat, uh, not only to their power, but to their culture. Mm -hmm. And so this, if you looked at it originally, I think the message of Daniel is, remain faithful. Mm -hmm. God, will, God will deliver you from this. Now Jesus, to jump ahead, does face something similar. And he wrestles with, not with the fact that he's going to be delivered, but that God has required this of him. It was necessary. And he has to believe that he will be delivered, uh, but only through death. Mm. Uh, and so there is, a, there is a difference there. But I think that the message, for, for me at least, for us, is, you know, we are now living in under a foreign power. I'm going to call it liberal culture in quotes. Uh, and, and therefore, the basic driving con convictions of much of our culture is something that Christians can't do. And they will pay a price for this if they, in fact, stick to their guns. Um, I'm really struck by the fact that now, in the, as the churches disappear, the loyalty once given to the God of Israel and Jesus Christ is now a very marginal thing. And indeed, the interesting thing is that people's basic idolatries, basic commitments are really on different ways of life. And so, for example, Gallup has shown that people now are more likely to object if their child marries a Democrat and they're Republicans or vice versa, than mm. they are of marrying someone of a different religion. All I'm trying to say is their forces here, they're huge. Yeah. And the question is, if you stand firm in the midst of these fortunes, these things, Two things. One is, it's not all bad. There are Darrisies, there are good guys around in this crowd. The bad thing is, not, I'm all, not all of them are. I'm sorry, I'm rambling on. No. Uh, no. It seems to me that, anyway, there, there are real relevancies to our situation. And Philip, I, I, I love those comments and appreciate them. And just a clarification, whenever you use the phrase liberal culture. I don't take that to mean the opposite of conservative culture no, in terms no. of the polarization of liberal conservatism in America, but rather uh, more in the classical sense of uh, a world where uh, a materialist secular world where we're on our own kind of competing for resources and the self and the tribe is held up as supreme. Is that kind of that's what exactly, you mean? That's exactly. Yeah. And then we divide up on how to manage all that. Exactly. Yeah. I like to, whenever I, 
whenever I hear liberal being used in the classical sense, I always have to make sure we, we clarify it because it means something else in our context. Yeah, yeah I agree. That's I'm perfect. sorry for the short. No. I just did. No, I think it's great. Yeah. yeah. So I, I... Martha, I love those comments and especially the emphasis on the living God, just to kind of make some connections to Daniel. Do you remember in chapter five, when Belshazzar got out the vessels and was mocking God and the company of others, they were told that they praised the idols of gold, silver, wood, and stone. And that, of course, is a reference to Psalm 115, I believe, uh, or a different psalm where it talks about, you know, uh, their idols aren't alive. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have... Um, you know, and so kind of just to echo what you said, uh, the whole idea of idolatry is one way or another, you're worshiping something that's dead. You're not worshiping something that's alive. And uh, so I just want to kind of build off, off what you said. Well, and certainly the, the, um, the, the story in the Old Testament that kind of captures the essence of all this is an exodus where the people worship a golden calf that they have made, right? A calf of gold that you've made is the exact opposite of a living God. But in reading that story, scripture asks each one of us to look at our fundamental commitments, what it is we orient our life around and to say, you know, okay, you can look at the Israelites dancing around a golden calf they made and say, that's pretty silly. But are you willing to look at the way that you idolize power, the way you idolize self-image, the way you idolize wealth, can you see your own silliness reflected back to you? Because they're kind of the same thing. That's kind of what scripture is up to with its stories of idolatry. I pursue it to an earlier conversation we've had, John, but I think one of the things that could can be said about our idols is that when it all comes down to it, the basic idol is me, it's I. This is a me, I culture. And then different people in order to pursue their I or their me attach to different things, position, money, power, whatever. My particular ethnic group, uh, we have all kinds of ways of doing this. Whereas it seems to me the, the point at which Christians really crash with this is that we believe we're an us before we're an I. And that our destiny is not to dwell alone with our own freedom and reason. Our destiny is to live in communion with God and with one another. Mm -hmm. If that becomes the fundamental vision, then much of what goes on around us is simply unacceptable. I, I remember uh, several months ago, I passed a man at a, tra a traffic light who was driving a brand new Bentley. And on the back of it, he had a sign, leave my money alone. I earned it. Philip, that was me. That was my new car. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, if you, like, I'm sorry. Anyway. Well, and, or I can give another example. My daughter, who's my, or our daughter, Eliza is far left, far left. But there are points in which she's disagreed with the, the gender uh, 
issue of can you be operated on to change your markings, as it were, at an early date. And she came out against that. She lost 10 friends who said, we will no longer speak with you. Yeah. Well, so Philip, that, that's a good, that's a really good example because, um, so, because to, to your point, we have to take it deeper, right? Because we can't just shift from me to us, from the individual to the tribe, because we have to ask the question, what constitutes the tribe? And so um, in Christianity, it's baptism, it's sacrament, which is death and rebirth from all affiliations um, that would threaten one's loyalty to the living God, which is why in the early church, you know, what did Paul say in Galatians? In Christ, there is no longer male or female, slave free, you know, barbarian, Scythian, um, and that there's nothing wrong. So here's the thing. It's about holding on. There's nothing wrong with being a Republican. There's nothing wrong with being a Democrat. There's right. nothing wrong with being an American. There's nothing wrong with being a German, but right? But the question is, do you wear these identities as a suit of armor that can't be taken off or are they kind of like a windbreaker over your fundamental clothing, which for Christians is grace, baptism, Christ. Um, so that, so kind of talking about your daughter where, kind of the liberal tribe turns on her for having a position um, that doesn't align with theirs, that can't happen in the church, right? Whenever the church says be of the same mind in Philippians, for instance, they're not talking about agreement on political social issues. They're talking about the mind of Christ, which in Philippians chapter two is a mind that empties itself uh, for the sake of the other. And so whenever we talk about shifting from the I to the us, we then have to affirm the us is that which is created as a gift of grace in the waters of baptism. And that brings people of difference together. It's not Jew here, Gentile here, but Jew and Gentile worshiping together. It's a really radical, radical thing. It's the worst spots of our lives and how the, you know, basically that's, that's, that's become the, you know, new golden calf or mm -hmm. idol. Yeah. Well, so, you know, to, to kind of, to, to, to tie it in a little bit more, you know, so if you haven't listened to my sermon today, um, you can, if you'd like, it's on um, Thomas and the idea of kind of patching our heart and taking that patch off as part of a larger resurrected life. But, you know, so, when one's identity, or let me let me put it this way, because it's not an, it's not a black or white either or. The more our identity is rooted in baptism, the less threatened we are. So the reason, like we, the reason it gets really painful. If your chief identity, if your sense of self is bound up in how much money you have in the bank, or how you're doing at work, or in whether or not your team's winning, or your political party is successful, well. We all know that is a very flimsy and vulnerable thing because you're up one minute, you're down the next, and, and that can be taken away at any moment, and thus your sense of identity can be taken away at any moment. And so we live from a posture of defensiveness, 
anger, irritability. We see others as threat whenever they're going to challenge what we're clinging to because they're challenging our identity. But whenever one's identity is rooted in Christ, or to the extent that it is, there's no threat. Your political opinions, your value, they're not a threat. (laughs) Your opinions on things aren't a threat. And so the more, right, that we root ourselves in Christ, the more that patch comes off naturally, not as an effort, but it's kind of like a teddy bear you don't need to sleep with anymore. You know, like you're just more secure. And so life isn't as scary. So you don't have to walk around as guarded and well defended. So I'm glad you kind of see a connection there because I think that there is a connection there to be made. Can I just say one radical thing? You can, Evie. You can say anything you want. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what I pray for every day. I pray for all of humanity to see itself Mm -hmm. as one family, one Mm -hmm. tribe, that we're all bound in love and loyalty to each other and to God. And that to me, like having read Philip's book, what we all need is an elevation of consciousness So we see ourselves as one group in this whole life together. Each one of us individually is created out of God's self-giving love. And he loves each of us. We are all part of one family. Um, And that, that is what I pray for us to realize. Because I think if we could realize that, then cooperation and selflessness would follow from that. EB, I'll be the first to say I'll join you in praying for that. I'm with you. I think that's beautiful. And that is that is a good way to end today. That That is a vision to be pursued and worked for. So thank you for sharing that. That's lovely. Well, one thing I, I want to say just to kind of close, to go back to Barbara's question, um, and we're not going to get to it, but she raised the question about, well, Jesus, you know, wasn't delivered. He had to go to the cross and there are these others, and I think it's important because, A, we're Christians, B, it's a season of Easter, just to name that true vindication is not getting a pass on the lion's den, but it's resurrection. Yes. And uh, we think of Lazarus, for instance, who was in that tomb for four days, but then came out alive. Lazarus was not resurrected. He was resuscitated. He was restored, but Lazarus still got old and he had to die. And Daniel didn't get to go off to heaven in a whirlwind. At least we're not told that in the book of Daniel. He also got old and probably got sick and he also died. And so for Christians who are reading the Daniel story and for first century Jews, it's important to name that the ultimate vindication was never escaping a difficult situation or escaping you know, um, difficulty, but it was always a belief in resurrection. So I think it's important to hold that as we read this as Christians and seek to make sense of, well, why do some people kind of get out of the difficult situation and other people don't? Eventually, we all have a difficult situation to undergo, and we lay down our life in trust, expecting God to take it up again, because that's what belief in resurrection is. So Maybe I'll just end with that comment today.